unraveling the secret world of truffles, donuts in Los Angeles, and an unexpected trip to the Oscars. This week, we're talking to filmmakers. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week we explore the world's great dishes and drinks, and this week it's some of my favorite conversations with filmmakers. But first, let me tell you where I'm at. The Livramento Market in Stubel is my local fresh produce market, but it's also a world-famous market called one of the best in the world in a 2015 USA Today newspaper article. I go there, and a lot of locals go there all the time to get their fruits and veggies, and it makes it kind of funny that you also see tourists in there with their video cameras posing, taking selfies and whatnot, because this is a famous market, but it's also an everyday market. It would be like you going into your local Ralph's or Stop and Shop and having tourists taking pictures. Uh, The reason I love this place is it's, well, first of all, it's close. It's only a couple blocks from my apartment, so I'm there every couple of days fresh fruits and veggies they're piled high at the stalls and right now in season i'm getting lots of delicious greens local strawberries they're in season and this little pale orange fruit that's shaped like a miniature pear it's delicious i don't even know what the name of it is but i like to grab a handful when i'm at the livramento market there's also cheese and bread and flour vendors dried beans herbs all that stuff too So if you're coming to Portugal, be sure and check out the Livramento Market. This week on the show, I'm looking back at some of my favorite conversations with filmmakers over the past couple of years. In this episode, we talk about truffle hunters telling their deepest hopes and dreams to their truffle hounds, parents passing down their restaurant business to the kids, and how honey is a harbinger of climate change. So you got truffles, donuts, honey. I'm starving, so... Let's eat. Destination. Eat, drink. Gregory Kershaw and Michael Dweck are award-winning filmmakers. Their film, The Truffle Hunters, is a great piece of work, and they talk to me about the secretive world of truffle hunting and drinking some rustic wine in Italy. You talk about the secret society, and I'm really fascinated with this because I know that these folks will not let just anyone be a part of their club. Um, You know, they've got even family members who they don't tell where their secret truffle finding spots are. (laughs) How how did you guys penetrate this? It took took a lot of time because, I mean, what what we didn't realize is just, just... Finding out who the truffle hunters are in this community is is really difficult because there's it's a secret kept within the community. Yeah, so we would, you know, we would go to the trattoria where they had truffle on the menu, mm-hmm. and we would, you know, we would see that they had fresh truffle, and we would ask the owner, "Hey, so um, could you introduce us to the truffle hunter who sells you these truffles every day?" And he'd say, "Oh, I never even met the guy. I just, you know, I leave some money in a box in the middle of the night." And, when I wake up, there's a truffle in there. And that, so you realize that just finding finding out who the truffle hunters were was going to it, it, it was going to 
to take time. And with, with that minute, we really had to start building relationships in the community. And we met with a lot of different people. And, you know, we would meet with the trattoria owner who would introduce us to the town priest who had a cousin who was a truffle hunter who would introduce us to somebody else. And, and it, it kind of went, you know, we went around in circles like that for a long time. And we got to know a lot of people in these communities communities and they and but through that process I think they, they they came to understand, you know, what we were interested in, that we wanted to tell a story that, that I think they thought was important and we started to meet the truffle hunters and 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 you know that it was the same kind of process because yeah, the, the the secret. I mean, everything about this world is the secret. Where they find the truffles is the secret. Where they sell the truffles is the secret. Who they sell the truffles to is the secret. And that's because the white truffle. It, yeah, it can't be cultivated, and it's the most expensive ingredient in the world. So, so it you know knowing knowing where a truffle might bloom can lead to it can lead to another truffle hunter getting there first, or even worse, it can lead to a truffle hunter who's who's inexperienced and maybe doing it for the wrong reasons to go there and dig it up before it's ripe. And if that happens, it won't grow back the next year because it it will not have had time to release its spores into the ground. So, so these these secrets are you know they're 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 kept with them and they're they're accumulated with really a lifetime of knowledge that's built on the knowledge of of all the the history of the truffle hunters that came before them. And we we were invited into the world very very slowly. It was a lot you know it was a lot of meals with the people that we were filming with. We drank wine with them. We drank espresso with them. Mm. We we followed them into the field. And eventually they started they started we, we still don't know if we actually have ever been to, you know, their what they consider their their favorite truffle force. But we, we <laughs> eventually they started letting us in and they started sharing their world with us. And 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 you know it was, that that all happened really before we brought out the camera and started filming. We tried to really understand the world in a really deep way and understand the lives of the people that we were filming and have relationships with them. And only then did we did we take out the camera and and start trying to translate this incredible magical feeling that we felt with them into into cinema. I'm glad you penetrated this secret society because the film is gorgeous and. One thing that struck me, and it's a very small, it's a very small thing in the film, but I noticed that in a couple of places where you go, you're in the houses of these farmers, these truffle hunters, and inevitably you see a bottle of unlabeled wine on the table or on the <laughs> shelf. And I love this because I love when the unlabeled wine comes out because it means that person made the wine or maybe these truffle hunters, I don't know, maybe they uh, bartered with a truffle for some wine or something. Mm-hmm. Tell me about drinking the wine. Exactly. Well, it's true that you say a lot of this barter, you know, we, you know, it's funny, we would bring gifts uh, to the truffle hunters. We would bring a lot of times raw meat because we lived also above a butcher. And there was a great butcher in this village. And, um, you know, he'd give us sausage and, uh, you know, all these different cuts of, of you know, different, different raw meats. Uh, so, and we also had cheese like gorgonzola. We knew Angela like gorgonzola. So we always had in our van uh, products like that to bring because they were so generous with their time. So we would give, you know, meat to, uh, let's say, well, Angela or Carlo. And Carlo would then, at the end of the day, he'd come out and give us this, this bottle of wine without a cork in it <laughs> and just say this is from my this is from my vineyard because he he grew you know this 
he grew Moscato wine, just the white wine. But he said, oh, this is a gift. And so we, now we'd have this, there were big bottles, magnums almost, of this wine, but no corks that were driving around our van. But, <laughs> and then we would, you know, we couldn't drink all of it, of course. And then we would take one of the bottles of wine and we'd give that to, An- to Angelo. <laughs> and Angelo would then give us like a, a crate of persimmons from his persimmon tree. And then we have, we have like 20 persimmons that were going to be, that were ripe. And then we had, you know, we'd go to the next stop, you know, to a and we'd Give him some persimmons, and he'd give us some pomegranate. <laughs> so you know, we, had this, we were operating like a train in our van, back and forth uh, with with food and wine. A whole underground economy, literally, literally starts underground with the truffles, but now it's an underground economy of, yeah, of bartering. That's uh, that's a wonderful story. Of course, the wines are incredible because that region grows, uh, you know, Nebbiolo grape, which you know, you know, you get Barbaresco wine, you get Garolo wine, and that's part of the some of the issues we present in the film in a subtle way is that now because of climate change, you, you know, five, six, seven years ago, you couldn't grow Nebbiolo uh, grapes in that in that region because it'd be too cold in the mountains. But now it's it's warmed up, so you can grow that. So they're deforesting a lot of the region where you need you, know, you need oak trees for truffles, and uh, you know they're clearing the land um, to make way for these vineyards that look beautiful, but it, you know it creates other issues in the territory. But we had you know you see that our truffle judge, the guy who's he smells the truffles in the, in the truffle fair. He decides um, which truffle is good enough to make it to the to the market, and which really go to the to the trash inevitably. And um, you know, he's a very interesting man. He's he's a he was a chocolate taster for I think ten or twelve years. Uh, he was a wine taster for the same amount of time, and now he's a been a, a truffle truffle taster and judge for I think fifteen years. So we went out to lunch with him, and he hands the menu to us. We didn't know he's a wine taster. We're talking to. We had no idea. So he hands the menu to the wine list to Greg and I, this little trattoria, and he and he says, "Well, you pick the wine." And and then somebody, the translator, leaves next to us and says, "He's the region's most important wine taster. Do not pick the wine. Hand the the wine list back to him." (laughs) He slowly handed it back and said, "No, no, it's your it's your day today. Why don't you pick the wine?" But he knows everything about the soil of every single vineyard. The sun, the acidity, every everything, every component that goes into a great wine, the families that are growing it. So when you drink wine in that region with somebody who really has intimate knowledge of the of the family and and the soil, it really tastes quite different. We can't talk about truffle hunting without talking about dogs. The dogs are such an important part of going. I mean, they're the ones who do the work. They find the truffles. And these dogs are highly trained. You know, in America, we say, oh, my dog, he's part of the, he or she, she, part of the family. But watching this film, you have the feeling that not only are they part of the family, are these dogs part of the family? They have an elevated position within the family. Talk about the importance of the truffle dogs. Well, when we we first started filming, I mean, it it was really clear to us that the dogs were they were characters in the film that were, they were just as important in the story as, as the truffle hunters that we were filming with. And we started thinking like, you know, cause the humans, you know, generally humans, you, you know, they're easier to capture with, with a, with a camera because they, you know, when two humans talk, they're generally sitting down and you can capture a conversation. A dog, especially a truffle dog is always in motion. I mean, they, they, and that's, that's one of the characteristics of a good truffle dog is they have, they have a, incredible elevated sense of smell, but they, they have a ton of energy and they need it because they're out in the woods for 
12 hours a night, constantly searching in this, you know, frenetic, frantic frenzy, the ecstasy of finding a truffle. So, so we, we, we wanted to figure out a way to, to capture the dog's perspective in the world. And, and it led us to, it led us to a lot, a lot of experimentation. I mean, we, we started, we started researching all these really complicated rigs on logs and talking to different film rental houses and harnesses with little uh, stabilizers that would, that would allow us to put a camera on a dog. And we, we got them and we tested them and none of them really, they, none of them brought you into the dog's perspective. It didn't feel, it felt like you were floating above the dog, but we wanted you to, we wanted you to experience the world as the dog experiences it. We wanted you to experience the thrill of running through the woods, the, the, the exuberant, the exuberance of finding a truffle and, and, and this, 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 this excitement that the truffle hunter and the dog share. And so what had, what we, what we ultimately ended up discovering is that the best way to do it, we, we worked with a local cobbler who, who happened to have a, have, have a shop right below where we were living. And we went into a shop and we, we, we explained what we wanted to do. And he said, come back, give me, give me dimensions. And I, I will make you a, a harness that will allow you to put a little GoPro on, on a dog's head. And, and so we, we did. And then the next day he made, he, he made a harness for us and we brought it out with Sergio actually. And Sergio put it on one of his dogs, Fiona, and they went out truffle hunting into the woods and we, we just, Michael and I stayed back in our, in our, in our production van and they came back three hours later and we said, where's the camera? And he said, what? <laughs> and, uh, that, that, that was uh, the last we saw of that camera, but we, um, but we got, we got another one and, uh, we made another, another harness and this one fit the dog better. And, and we started using these, we started using these harnesses with all, all the dogs. We made uh, harnesses that fit all their different heads. And this footage that we got back was just, it, it was, it was so amazing because it would go on for, for hours. We would just let the camera roll. And we would, at first you would just experience the excitement, the thrill that these dogs have going on the hunt and running through the woods. But then you, then we realized that we, we were learning about the relationship that the truffle hunters have with their dogs, the way they interact on the hunt, the way, the way the truffle hunter calls back to them and the, and that the dog listens to that call and knows exactly what to do and the thrill of finding a, a truffle. But then we also realized like with Aurelio, we would hear that he would be, he would be speaking to Berba and he would not just command, he would be telling Berba, his worries, his fears, his hopes, his dreams, wow. just like in the film. But we didn't, we didn't know that until we saw that footage. And it was, it, it, it just, it blew open this whole new way of understanding what these dogs, what they, they meant in the lives of the truffle hunters and how, how, how incredibly deep that relationship was. Alice Gu is a California filmmaker who made the acclaimed movie The Donut King. She talks to me about the world of Vietnamese donut makers in Los Angeles and shares an amazing story that didn't make it into the film. What attracted me to the story in the first place, you know, and, and the film, as you know, it, it unravels more than just a story about Ted Noy. But what attracted me to the story in the first place were these articles that I read. Again, this, the 1982 LA Times, 1995 LA Times stories. His life it was a roller coaster. It was Shakespearean in and of itself. Hmm. He was born. I was going to say it was like an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel, but maybe Shakespearean <laughs> is even better. <laughs> he was born dirt poor. 
um, a Chinese minority um, in Cambodia. And his mother, I mean, they lived, I mean, you name it, it was the dirt floors, not enough food to eat, no shoes, no schooling. And his mother worked hard and she said, this is our way out of poverty. I have one son and I'm going to save up all my money, you know, pennies at a time and be able to send him to the best schools that I can afford. So she sends him to the schools and I mean, he goes from the schools, from these villages to falling in love, I'd say by high school, he falls in love with the most beautiful girl in school from the most wealthy and influential family. <laughs> and he marries, uh, her name was Sugantini and he was in love with her. She smelled like flowers is what he said. And, uh, you know, this actually wasn't in the film, um, cause there wasn't enough time to tell everything. So this is, this will be new for you, Brent. Oh, good. Um, so in Asia at the time, in Cambodia, somebody from her class, a family of her stature, there's no way you could associate with somebody of Ted's stature. I mean, and if you were from, you know, that poor underclass, your life is not even worth anything. I mean, her father could easily kill him and not, and, and that would be completely acceptable. Wow. And so they were in love and the parents, they found out and the father said, I will kill you. Mm. Ted said, um, okay, well, this is how we're not going to kill you. You have to tell my daughter that you are no good, that you're a good for nothing. And we are going to hide behind a curtain in the living room. Wow. while this happens so that we know that you really go through with it and then we're not going to kill you so they behind behind the curtains ted comes in sugantini is there and he says sugantini you know what i'm a no good i'm a dog i never loved you uh i have no feelings for you i have lots of other girlfriends i've just uh you know you mean nothing to me and he said that he saw her heart burst before his very eyes and she was just completely heartbroken and he couldn't take it. And he had gone, he had gone in with a knife hidden in his pocket. And he said he couldn't go through it. He said, you know what? This is none of this is true. I love you. Your parents put me up to this. I would rather die than hurt you. And he stabs himself three times. What? I mean, it's wild. This and is Shakespearean then. It is Shakespearean. And she is so devastated and she like takes a bunch of pills and so she tries to kill herself. Oh jeez! It ends up the parents finally, they said, Oh my God, we, what are we going to do with you guys? Okay. We'll let you be together, but you've shamed our family. You cannot remain in the city. You have to go to the countryside. I mean, so that alone, I was already <laughs> captivated um, in the first, you know, few years of his life. But then it's the, the Khmer Rouge. This is a little history lesson. Um, the Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia and there was a massive genocide and the people who could get out could get out. And this included Ted and his family. And he came uh, to the United States, the one and only time in U.S. history where a U.S. president issues an executive order to, to receive refugees. Hmm. And he finds his way to on a military plane to Camp Pendleton, California. And within six months, he trained, became a, uh, manager of a donut shop and within three years of landing here in the United States became a millionaire. Uh, pennies at a time. Uh, yeah. One, <laughs> Selling donuts. Think one donut at a time at, you know, whatever a donut cost in the seventies, 12 cents or whatever it happened to be. And 
I, I just, as you're telling that story and as I'm watching the news as to what's going on now, I can't help but see parallels oh my God, between Afghanistan and, and the story that you're telling. And it just blows my mind. But what I wanted to ask you about, because Alice, I've spent uh, some time, some years uh, working with immigrants myself from all over the world. And one thing that I find, and you kind of, you hit on this in the movie really nicely, is that no matter where, where anybody's from, they all want the same thing. They all want the better life for the kids. But there's this push and pull, especially with families who start their own businesses, because they work so hard seven days a week, 365 days a year, the kids are often working in the stores with them so that they can save enough money to send the kid to college so they can become a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, and have a good, easier, wealthy life, happy life. But I think in the back of their minds, they're also hoping come back and be the, you know, take over the family business from us. Can you talk a little bit about how that works with the uh, Cambodian families and the donut shops? Yes. Uh, so interestingly enough, as I was making the film, like when we were just deep in filming, and uh, there was an article that came out in the New York Times about the Chinese restaurants in Flushing, mm. and this was or in Queens. You know, this was exactly to your point that the restaurant business—it is not glamorous. It's hard work. Um, and it's service-based, you know, and a lot of people treat you pretty crappy. And, of course, they want their kids to be educated and go work at Facebook and Apple. <laughs> right. Um, or, or doctors, right? And so one by one, these restaurants in Flushing, they are, they're closing because they're products of their own success. The kids don't want to be doing that kind of work anymore. And that is certainly the case for these donut shops, you know, several of them. I said, Oh, what do your kids do? Do they work in the shop? And they're like, no, no, no. My kid works at Facebook. Right. <laughs> they don't want to do this. <laughs> they don't want to wake up at two in the morning and bake donuts and burn themselves in the hot oil and 40 pound bags of flour and on their feet for 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And that's also not why we came here. Um, at the same time, yes, there is that push pull. Um, Come and help with the shop. Come back and help us. Uh, and I, I've certainly seen both cases um, in the film. There was one that the parents, they had gotten tired and they wanted to retire. And their son, who is college educated, had a degree in marketing and communications. Couldn't, he just couldn't bear to see the shop go. Mm. You know, he said, we'll sell the shop. And he's like, oh, just, just give it to me. I'll take it over, <laughs> even though that was never his plan. Right. And right. He, he, grew, he grew up resenting that shop and grew up resenting uh. having to be hey, the little child labor, you know, six years old and helping out at the shop because they don't have enough money for childcare. All the kids are at the shop all the time. Um, so you, you see a little bit of both. And, but what's really incredible is when these college educated kids do take over the shops, they really take them to another level that they're, immigrant parents could not. I mean, there was that one, and I'm the name is um, escaping me right now, but that one lady who took over the donut shop, and she's like a social media wizard. 
and she's, <laughs> you know, posting all this stuff and they're getting hundreds of likes and it's just really taken the donut shop into the 21st century, right? So that is Meili Tao, the donut princess. Ted <laughs> is her Ted is her great uncle. And the shop is DK's in Santa Monica. It's been open 40 years. It's never been closed, not even for a minute since they opened. Oh, wow. And it's a bit of a Santa Monica institution. There is Santa Monica College right there. All the high school kids go there. There are four hospitals near there. All the doctors, nurses, radiologists, bus drivers, teachers, Meryl Streep. I mean, they all, <laughs> they all go to that donut shop. And she is quite the social media Maven. I mean, she took that store over again. She's also college educated and didn't really want to go to the shop. It was always plan B, but she rebranded and started from zero and built a following. I think they have like 88, 89,000 followers now. And what I just learned last week, which has been really fun since the Donut King is out on Hulu and it's on almost every major U.S. airline or air carrier. Oh, cool. And so many people are watching movies on planes these days and a couple of international ones. She just shared with me in DK's now, there's a little fan wall. So all these people from all over the world have come to take pictures with the princess and her mom. <laughs> like there are people who were like, I saw this movie on the way from Miami to Los Angeles and it blew my mind. I went straight from the airport to DK's. Academy Award nominee Lubomir Stefanov co-directed the movie Honeyland about an encroaching world of capitalism and climate change on the traditional honey harvesters of Macedonia. Your film Honeyland was nominated for a couple Academy Awards, which is an amazing accomplishment for a film from North Macedonia. But when you started making Honeyland you didn't have that particular topic in mind. You were working on something else. Tell me how the movie Honeyland came about originally. Uh, you mean uh, we didn't have in mind to go to Kodak Theater? Yes, exactly. <laughs> started in the frame of a nature conservation project as an idea for first for finding a topic for a documentary which will be somehow related uh, to, to that specific area from some environmental perspective. And when we found uh, Atija and what she's doing, we decided that she is our topic, actually, and uh, to continue with her. And then we developed that, uh, that uh, initiative to a bigger documentary. It's a magnificent piece of work. And of course, honey is part of the central theme and environmentalism is part of the no, central. No, no, Honey is not a, not a central theme. Honey is just a part of na just nature resource here. And uh, bees are only a provider, just a representative of the nature. What, what is crucial here in this film is that uh, we, we, we both, both with uh, the other co-director, with Tamara, uh, we succeed to explain one of the most uh, crucial problems of our time in a probably most simple way. And that is uh, that we, we, uh, we've shown how a capitalistic approach of dealing actually works and impacts our environment. Uh, not uh, through through analyzing and through showing global movements or or, or influences, 
but in one of the smallest communities of three and a half people, right? Right. There are three and a half growing up people, excluding kids. And uh, how when uh, if there is a certain balance, although although the whole area is very uh, dry and there are no much resources, even for bees, uh, there is a certain balance and there is enough for everybody, enough for Atije, enough for the bees, enough for Hussein and enough for uh, for his cows. And what happened then? Then one man came who has money and uh, asked Hussein, hey guy, you're dealing with bees, as I can see. If you give me, can you give me all your honey? And he says, no, my teacher told me that I can give you only half. But he says, hey guy, I'll pay you more if you give me more. And that's the crucial sentence. Right. And uh, here we don't have uh, Hussein and his family. They're not negatives. They're not antagonists. They're representatives of uh, probably of all of us. Uh, that's that's the, the, the key point of, of that. It is not environmental. It is existential. Uh, it's a more existential point. How... Uh, Capitalistic. Uh, it's a very simple word. Probably it's not the right word, but how uh, when somebody came with the money, uh, things are going downhill. And it's incredibly effective the way that you tell this story of this um, of this beekeeper and what happens when um, capitalism comes into this tiny village. I wanted to ask you, Lubomir, about the importance of honey itself in. North Macedonian culture, because I've been to a couple of countries that used to be part of Yugoslavia, but I've, I haven't been to North Macedonia. I've been to Croatia, I've been to Slovenia. And yeah. one thing that I noticed, especially in Slovenia, was the importance of beekeeping and honey. Many, many people who just have a little patch in their backyard um, keep beehives and collect honey for their families. And if they have some extra, they might sell it at the local market. You go to a local market in Slovenia, there's a dozen people selling honey. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of honey and beekeeping just in general to the culture of North Macedonia? I'll try, although I'm not very competent about uh, the topic. Okay. Uh, regarding my, my, my knowledge or my informations, uh, there are lots of people here uh, in the countryside, especially in, in, in the in whole country, uh, even in western or in eastern parts or in, in mountains or in uh, lower parts. There are lots of people who are dealing with, uh, with bees since everywhere. I remember I was growing up in the center of Skopje. Now it is a city of around one million uh, people. When I was a kid, it was much smaller, three times smaller maybe. Uh, but I remember uh, I was growing up in the center and uh, in the in the yard, it was not a backyard, but front yard in front of my house, uh, there were uh, beehives. It was in the 70s, of course. Even now, there are lots of people who are keeping bees from, but uh, mainly for for them and uh, for, for the family, for friends or I don't know. But uh, in recent times, there are initiative of some cooperation, co cooperative, uh, I don't know, group of uh, beekeepers from some area are uh, uh, gathering to, 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 I don't know, establish some brand or something like that. And a kind of beekeeping cooperative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, especially in, in, in Eastern Macedonia, there's a uh, couple of them, of the cooperatives. Okay, there you go. And I just got to say, I consider myself so lucky because for all the folks in this episode, Gregory and Michael, Alice, Lubomir, I didn't know any of them before seeing their films. I, I watched their movies, I loved them, and just out of the blue, I sent them a note asking them to be on the podcast. Each one agreed, and it's so nice that I get to have people on the show whose work I really enjoy. If you'd like to listen to the full original episodes with my guests on this week's show, I've got links in the show notes. Get that at radiomisfits.com slash DED174. Anyway, it's been great being here at the Livramento Market in Stubel, Portugal. Next week on the show, it's all about mushrooms. I figured I've talked so much about truffles on the podcast, it's time to give uh, equal time to another fungi mushrooms so that'll be next week until then get over to destinationeatdrink.com i just published a story about the watts tower in california and its strange connection to the beatles get that at destinationeatdrink.com slash blog destination eat drink is distributed by the radio misfits podcast network and sharknado co-star ed silla thanks ed i'm brent peterson i'll see you down the road Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.